welcome into Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace. Uh, coming at you, it is Monday, April 10th. It's the early evening here. Um, it took me a little bit to get this pod out, man. There was a lot going on in the last week of the regular season. Um, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I uh, wanted to start off by saying, hey, my bad. I got to take one, <laughs> take one to the chest real quick because um, I shouted out a couple different matchups that I was excited about and I had all this optimism um, at this time last week when I was recording the last episode and, and taking a look at some of the matchups that I thought were going to be relevant down the stretch. I probably shot about one of one of six on those matchups being any type of entertaining. Uh, we saw a lot of load management. A lot of the standings were, were kind of locked up. We did get, you know, a couple entertaining games. You know, the, the Sixers-Celtics game was fun if you, you liked watching him be drop 50, which I certainly did enjoy. And I know the Pelicans and Grizzlies, you know, played in a or Wolves rather played in a couple relevant games, but um, you know there was a couple couple games to watch for. But overall, it was a pretty disappointing last week of the regular season. I think I was just too optimistic about teams kind of you know finishing the season strong, but a lot of it was locked up, especially in the Eastern Conference. So wanted to say my bad on that, but no need no need to apologize any further because I got a really awesome episode for you guys today. Um, we're mainly going to be focusing on the NBA awards, the regular season awards for the 2022-2023 season. Wanted to jump on this you know, short window we have here in between the end of the regular season and the start of the play-in tournament um, that is scheduled to start tomorrow. So I uh, wanted to really only focus on this period. Again, these are regular season awards. Um, these are my opinions, my opinions only. Um, I did do some research, of course, but I really did not pay attention to you know, any other opinions by prominent media figures, I, I did my best to to do my own research, if you will, and, um, you know, kind of create my own opinion based on the games that I watched this season, the statistics, um, and so on and so forth. So really excited to go through the full ballot and give you my choice on the awards. Again, not who I think is going to win, just in my opinion, who is deserving of these awards. So, you know, before we get into that, I did just have some housekeeping. We talked about some of the disappointing matchups this week, but, you know, it wasn't all bad, right? There were still some things to talk about, and the Wolves, man, the Timberwolves stole the show. They they truly had, you know, if you guys missed it, uh, on Easter Sunday yesterday, every single team in the NBA played. So there were 30 different matchups, and there was really only one that was remotely relevant, and that was the game between the Pelicans and the Timberwolves. Um, and it was, you know, it certainly didn't disappoint. It was an awesome finish. The Wolves, um, you know, ended up pulling it out, which was, you know, all said and done, a pretty great win for them. But the question is really at what cost? Because if you guys somehow didn't see it, um, there was an altercation in the huddle in the second half between uh, Rudy Gobert and Kyle Anderson that was escalated to the point that Rudy straight up threw a punch, threw a punch across the huddle. Um, they had to be separated. It was right in front of, you know, the the quasi-owner of the Timberwolves, as well as some, uh, obviously the whole coaching staff is right there. And it was a, a nationally, not a nationally televised game. It was a league pass game. But nonetheless, it was the only relevant game of the entire slate. So that was a really, really terrible look uh, for the Timberwolves in general. Um, you know, they ended up suspending Rudy Gobert for their play-in game, which is scheduled for tomorrow against the Los Angeles Lakers. And on top of that, I think the worst part that not as many people were talking about, because it isn't as you know drama-filled, I suppose, um, is Jaden McDaniels, their best perimeter defender far and away. Somebody we'll actually talk about a little bit later in the episode when we talk about some of the first-team all-defense stuff. 
but he's an incredible defender. He's a young player. I want to say this is his third season. He's super important to that team. He's been really consistent for them. Uh, he picked up a couple early fouls and got pissed, and on his way into the locker room, uh, he punched a wall. He punched what he thought was a curtain, and there was a, a solid wall behind that, uh, and he broke his hand. So Jaden McDaniels is going to be out essentially the rest of the season for the Wolves, regardless of how far they progress in the playoffs. And then uh, Rudy Gobert is going to be suspended for at least one game um, for that play-in game uh, coming up tomorrow against the Los Angeles Lakers. And so... It's all right there for us. I encourage you guys to look it up and, and see how funny uh, of an altercation it was to watch. Um, I'm just kind of disappointed. I did want to see the Wolves uh, get into the playoffs. You know, not saying they, they can't. I mean, they still have a chance. But I would have loved to see them grab the seventh seed in the Western Conference just so we could have a rematch of the 2-7 last year, which was, again, Memphis. Um, having them play Memphis again this year, I think, could be a really fun series. Um, that honestly could go either way if the Wolves were at full strength. Uh, I think that it's definitely stacked against them now. Like, I, I really can't see a world in which they beat the Lakers uh, tomorrow tomorrow night. Uh, again, it could happen. It's one game. Who knows? But uh, it's going to be really stacked against them. Like, even if they, you know, if they lose to the Lakers, like, even if they play Oklahoma City or they end up playing the Pelicans again, like, that's going to be a really tough matchup for them. And I would not pick the Wolves to win either game despite them having home court in that second play-in matchup if it comes to that. So, it would be really, really bad if a Rudy Gobert altercation sufficiently ends the Wolves' season after you know how disappointing it was the entirety of the year already. So I guess the theme for the start of this episode anyway is bad to worse because that's exactly uh, exactly what happened with the Timberwolves. Uh, the same thing could be applied to the Dallas Mavericks because um, just as their season was already pretty bad and pretty much in the dumps, it, it ended about as lame as possible in my opinion. Um, if you guys missed it, I, I did talk about this on an earlier episode, but... Um, essentially, if Dallas landed outside of the play-in tournament, it's a pretty high likelihood that they're going to land the 10th pick in the NBA draft. Um, that's relevant because if they were outside of that top 10, the pick was going to go to the New York Knicks as the last piece of that Kristaps Porzingis trade. Um, but with that in mind, the Mavericks, with a couple games left in the regular season, decided to essentially tank. And instead of trying to explore their, their limited chance at making the play-in tournament, they decided to bench everybody, make sure they lost the last couple games, and assure that they, in all likelihood, have the 10th overall pick in the NBA draft. Um, I thought that that was super lame, just given where that team was at. They were in the Western Conference Finals last year. They made a, a, a deal at the deadline um, that included some draft compensation for Kyrie Irving to show that they are trying to win now, if you will, even though I don't think any of us actually thought they could win the title. I just think it's lame if you have a chance to make the play-in tournament that you don't take it at that point, um, and you really risk kind of pissing off your superstar who, they didn't bench Luka entirely, no, they actually did play him one quarter in one of those games, and, and then they had him uh, hit the showers after the first quarter and rejoin the rest of the starting five on the bench in sweatpants, so... Uh, I just thought it was a super lame way to end the season. So congrats, Mavericks fans. There's a lot of pressure on you to hit the 10th pick, which I'm sure you won't. Um, just given your draft history, um, you really haven't had much luck outside of that one draft where you drafted Luka and Jalen Brunson. So, uh, But there is a lot of pressure to nail that pick because, as we've mentioned, that's a roster that's devoid of talent. Um, and they really need they need bodies. Like Part of the reason I wasn't even a fan of the Kyrie deal is just... You know, let's just simplify it real quick. They traded away two good players and they got back one, right? Like they traded away two serviceable guys in Finney Smith and Dinwiddie, um, and they only got back one in Kyrie Irving. Like, again, that's simple uh, mathematics for you. It, that matters to a team when you don't have that many guys that you feel comfortable putting on the court. Like, those are minutes that are going to, like, JaVale McGee and Dwight Powell and, you know, Reggie Bullock and stuff like that. Like, you would prefer to have some more professionals out there. So, whoever they take at 10 in this upcoming draft is going to need to be an impact player. 
Um, they're going to need to play big minutes right away, so there's a lot of pressure on them. Uh, just like there's a lot of pressure on them to keep Luka happy somehow and re-sign Kyrie Irving so that deal doesn't look like a total dumpster fire. So that was my last Mavericks victory lap. We can all, you know, uh, breathe a sigh of fresh air. Uh, now that uh, a sigh of relief, rather, um, that I will not be talking about the Mavericks uh, until the conclusion of these playoffs, because there is certainly no reason to be doing that. So let's move on, man. Let's move on. Now that that housekeeping stuff's out of the way, let's get into the award ballots, right? So uh, again, I'm going through every single award. This is, in my opinion, not who I think is going to win. Um, I don't know when they're going to start to announce these awards. I think it was, you know, basically this time last year, they did it probably two weeks from this point. They started announcing some of the awards during like round one, and then they finished announcing them during round two of the playoffs. I'm not sure if that's even announced. So I just wanted to play it safe and get this out early. So let's start off with an easy one um, and let's go to the coach of the year. So I'm going to name basically my top three people on the ballot for this and, and the top three contenders for the award and, and eventually give you my pick. So um, in third place for this award, um, it's pretty interesting, but I did end up landing on Joe Mazzulla, uh, coach of the Boston Celtics. Just because of how this award is looked at, I feel like coach of the award is, is typically evaluated like, okay, what team, based on their level of talent or situation have you, you know, what team exceeded their expectations the most? And well, I, I don't necessarily feel like the Celtics exceeded expectations. They certainly met every expectation, right? I mean... It's pretty easy for us to forget how much of a dumpster fire it was for the Celtics at the start of the season just with the Ime Udoka scandal and not knowing if he was going to return to coaching the team, if they were going to hire somebody else. They really didn't even have time to do like a complete coaching search. And they, you know, they land on a 34-year-old rookie head coach to coach a team that is just coming off a finals um, appearance. So expectations were certainly really high for the team. And so in a vacuum, the season was a success for the Celtics. They finished with 57 wins. They finished as the second seed in the Eastern Conference and the second seed um, overall in the entire NBA, second best record in the league. So for that reason, I think Missoula um, deserves to be recognized for having a really successful season. Now, you know, we'll see how he does in the playoffs. We'll see if, if some of the late game lineup decisions come to a head um, once these games, you know, once the intensity and the pressure of these games is turned up. I have some optimism that the Celtics can figure it out and, and certainly contend for a championship. Uh, but this is his one chance where, you know, expectations were low because he was a rookie and he met them. So we'll see if he finds himself on the ballot in future years. But I, I wanted to mention him here. Moving on to the next coach on my ballot here, um, in second place, if you will, I had Mark Dagnalt. Uh, he's the coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Now, I'm not sitting here and saying that Oklahoma City was some insanely competitive team this year. I mean, they, they went from a 24-win team last year to a 40-win team. They are in the, uh, the Western Conference play-in tournament. Hopefully, they can make some noise there. Um, but I felt like it was a really just truly an impressive coaching job based on the amount of talent on that team. Um, of course, they had the second overall pick in last year's draft, and they drafted Chet Holmgren, who's a big man out of Gonzaga. Uh, Chet ultimately got hurt in like a exhibition summer league game before the season, and he missed the entirety of his rookie season. And that really mattered, you know. In addition to him being, you know, the number two overall pick, there's a lot of promise around him, and, and he's supposed to be a franchise-changing player. But in addition to the fact that this team had no bigs, like literally, like not a singular big man to speak of. Like I think it took some really creative coaching. Um, to maximize the lack of height and size that they had. And they really uh, were able to maximize their athleticism, getting out in transition. They're just a really fun team to watch that's that's really weird. And, and they're definitely playing at a disadvantage. They don't have many veterans on that team either. Like, you know, they have some, some truly elite talent in Shea. And I think Jalen Williams could get to that point as well. 
but I still thought it was that they exceeded expectations and it was just really impressive coaching that, you know, again, they're not a super competitive team, but they're in the play-in tournament. That's more than the Mavericks can say. So I felt like you had to mention him. Uh, but coach of the year is, is honestly the easiest award to give out this year. It's Mike Brown, the coach of the Sacramento Kings. Um, they went from a 30-win team last season to a 48-win uh, team this season. Uh, Mike Brown was coaching, assistant coach of the Warriors last year during their championship run. Um, and so this was a big signing for them, man. He's a huge part of, of why that team, you know, they easily took the biggest leap out of any team this season was the Kings. They're extremely well coached. Um, granted, they've been really healthy, um, but they're finishing off with 48 wins in the third seed in the Western Conference when expectations were, you know, maybe a play-in team at best is, is probably what people would say before the season. They would expect them to finish, you know, between like, you know, five and nine in the West is probably like a, an optimistic way of looking at it. You know, they're breaking a 14-year playoff drought, and Mike Brown was a big part of that. He's the easy choice for coach of the year. Let's move on to executive of the year. Um, this is one that not many people talk about, but I actually thought that this was uh, really interesting and, and one of the most fun ones and honestly one of the most difficult ones for me to decide. So in third place on this, I had Monty McNair. He's the uh, general manager or, or president of basketball ops, one, one of the two for the Kings. Um, and, and basically for all the same reasons I just said with Mike Brown, but I feel like a lot of people owe Monty an apology. You know, he took a ton of shit for uh, essentially trading for DeMontis Sabonis at last year's trade deadline. If you guys don't remember, they traded Tyrese Halliburton, who's, you know, was a young all-star uh, for the Pacers this year, as well as Buddy Heald for Sabonis. And a lot of people were like, you know, what are you doing? What, what are you doing with that? You're trading a younger, you know, potentially more promising player in Halliburton for somebody a little older in Sabonis. Uh, but it ended up being a, a true win-win trade. Like, I think both sides would actually run that trade back and do it again. You know, that's a deal that really took Fox's game to another level because they had, like, three or four point guards on that roster. Um, and it really, you know, gave Fox the leash and security that he needed to take a massive leap this year. And we'll talk more about Fox later. Um, and I think they took a lot of shit for, for drafting Keegan Murray over Jaden Ivey um, before this season, too, in last year's draft. And I think that ultimately ended up being a much better basketball fit for that team. You know, Keegan Murray um, was a really solid contributor for a team that finished third in the West. So great season for Monty McNair, but he's in third place. This is tough for me because I, I think the person that should win it is is probably Danny Ainge, right? Danny Ainge, we all know what happened in the summer. He took the Utah job uh, and essentially took, you know, immediately made a massive impact and took the Timberwolves for a ride. They traded, you know, I, I don't need to go through the entire Rudy Gobert trade again. Um, but essentially, he, he absolutely raked the Timberwolves over the coals and got back Walker Kessler um, and a shitload of first-round picks for Rudy Gobert, which was a genius move. Um, that Utah team last year wasn't going anywhere. They lost to Dallas in the first round that didn't even have Luka for most of that series. You know, the Mitchell and Gobert thing had played its course. Ainge recognized that, and he perfectly executed the rebuild. He traded away Gobert and one of the most lopsided trades in NBA history. Um, he traded Donovan Mitchell away for a ton of assets as well. While I think that was more of an equal, fair trade that we'll talk about, um, I think that he definitely maximized the value of both of those superstars. Um, the cherry on top is that he recognized the team was, you know, too competitive during this season because they were sneaky in the playoff hunt in the Western Conference, which didn't really align with the timeline of the team. And so he traded away Mike Conley, Jared Vanderbilt, and Malik Beasley for an additional first-round pick. So the reason why I think he had the best year as the executive, but I can't give him the award, is that they ultimately, they didn't do it, right? Like, they weren't competitive. You know, we know... You know, if you watched that, the, the the Jazz were one of the most, not one of the most, but they were a competitive team for the majority of this season. But 
if you look at the final record, you know, you look at the final box scores, they finished as the 13th seed in the Western Conference. I can't give that award to Danny Ainge yet. You know, again, he's acquired the draft capital. He's, you know, really on the fast track to making this rebuild happen. He acquired a young piece back in Laurie Markkinen. That's a guy you can build around. Same thing with Walker Kessler and Ochai Abashi. But he just hasn't, like, completed it yet. Once his team starts being more competitive and they cash in on a few of these draft picks, like, Danny Ainge needs to win this award within the next two or three years. I just, it doesn't feel right giving it to Danny Ainge just for acquiring a bunch of picks that he hasn't done anything yet, done anything with yet. And making sure his team wasn't competitive, because that's what he did. But I do think Danny H had the best year. Uh, with that being said, I would ultimately give it uh, give the award to Kobe Altman, uh, president of basketball operations for the Cavs, also a former Minutemen. Roll Minutemen, go UMass, baby. Uh, the Cavs had a really great season. They went from a 44-win team last year to a 51-win uh, team this season. Um, and they on, were on the other side of that Donovan Mitchell trade, right? They gave up a lot for Donovan Mitchell. They traded away Laurie Markkinen, Colin Sexton, Ochai Baji. Three first-round picks and two pick swaps for Donovan Mitchell. But I think that's a fair price to pay. I think that their team makes a ton of sense. I think they're virtually perfectly constructed in terms of, you know, Garland and Mitchell fitting together and then having Mobley and Allen. Um, and then they have, you know, veteran presence as well that I've talked about. Like, again, I think the only negative thing I can say about Altman this year was like the lame, you know, buying out Kevin Love and just letting him join the Heat when they probably could have flipped him for an asset. Uh, but whatever, man. I think Colby Altman has had a great couple years with the Cavs. He recognized that that team um, could actually win the whole thing as currently constructed within the next couple years, in my opinion. And so for making that leap, I, I have to give the award to Colby Altman for Executive of the Year. Moving on to a quick one here. Uh, we're going to go over the Clutch Award. Um, this is a new award this year for, you know, basically the most clutch player in the NBA, in my opinion, I, I get, or not in my opinion, in, according to the league's description, that's what the clutch award means. And I guess this one's just like a layup. Like, you know, I, I was trying to look into it a little bit more and what this award represents. But again, there's no history of this award. And by, by every metric, I'll just jump right to it. It's De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox um, leads the NBA in every clutch scoring metric I could find by a wide margin. If you watch the games, um, I think the eye test kind of meets up with that. Like the ball is, is constantly in his hands, which is interesting because, you know, you could certainly make an argument that Sabonis is their best player, but it makes sense that, you know, the ball is going to be in the hands of the point guard at the end of a close game. That's just kind of how the game is played these days. You know, you're not really giving your center too many post touches um, in that type of situation, but... I think it's a fair. It's fair that Fox would win this award. I think it was cool on Ryan Rosillo's podcast. Um, I think it was like a month ago. They had Kevin Herter on, and you know, of course, he plays on the Kings as well. And he was just talking about like, yeah, it's known. Like it's known at the end of close games. You know, we give the ball dear, and that's his time to shine, um, which is really cool. Like I don't think he had a reputation as a clutch player before that, but for the locker room to just kind of unite and understand that Fox is their guy at the end of close games. He seems like an obvious choice, and it, it's cool that he'll win that first ever award. Other guys on the ballot, um, I would just put Jimmy Butler and DeMar DeRozan. I just feel like that's, again, kind of like an eye test thing. Um, you know, the mid-range jumper is king at the end of close games. I love it. Jimmy and, and you know, nobody's better at it than DeMar DeRozan in the NBA. Um, and Jimmy just has so many games where, that the Heat have pulled out of their ass this season. Um, and Jimmy's been a big part of that. So I felt like both of those guys are worth mentioning. But that award is going to go to De'Aaron Fox. Let's move on to the Sixth Man of the Year Award. And so this is really a two-man race. So let me just quickly go over my, my third guy on my ballot here before we get into the real, real debate here. 
Number three, I had Norm Powell of the Clippers. He's a shooting guard. He comes off the bench. He's averaging 17 points a game off the bench, which is pretty impressive. 17-2-2. He comes in the game, and he he scores the shit out of the ball. I love Norm Powell. Um, Again, a little tease. He's definitely going to be on my My Guys team um, that I kind of talked about last, last week with Trey Murphy. Like, Norm Powell's a dog. I love watching him play. I feel like every time he plays, I just don't understand why he's not talked about more like I just think he's really good I think he's one of the Clippers five best players Um, I'm excited to watch them in the first round against Phoenix and see what he can do but uh, I just feel like he's not as valuable to their team as these other two guys that we're going to talk about really it's a two-man race for again six men of the year between Emmanuel Quickly of the Knicks and Malcolm Brogdon of the Celtics and I was looking into this and I think it's really close and us Celtics fans remember the game you know a couple weeks back where uh, I think it went into double overtime against the Knicks and uh, Brunson was out that game and quickly was just absolutely torching us. I think he finished with close to 40 points um, and he was unbelievable. But as Celtics fans, we also know how how valuable Rogdon's been for us all season, right? So initially my gut, you know, I was looking at the numbers and I, I was a little bit more impressed with quickly at first, just kind of based on you know his stats. You know, they're basically averaging identical numbers. Um, Quickly's averaging 15, 4, and 3, and he's played in 81 games, which I think is really important. And then Malcolm Brogdon is averaging 15, 4, and 4, but he's only played in 67 games. So initially, you know, just because of the durability factor, which, you know, and that's something that Brogdon has struggled with the entire career is the fact that he really can't stand the court. So 67 games for Malcolm Brogdon, like if you told Celtics fans before the season that that's how many you were going to get out of him, you'd be thrilled. But still, 81 games in today's NBA is a massive accomplishment. So I was initially leaning quickly, right? But I was kind of diving into the numbers a little bit more. Malcolm Brogdon played Every single one of his games off the bench. He did not start a singular game for the Celtics this season, as far as I know. That's at least what my sources on the internet research told me, right? Emmanuel quickly, on the other hand, he started 21 games because Brunson missed a significant amount of time. It was mostly filling in for Jalen Brunson. And in the games that quickly started, he averaged 23-5-5. But off the bench, he only averaged 12-4-3. And so I feel like Emmanuel quickly's numbers uh, were ballooned a bit by the fact that of, of the run that he had when he was the starting point guard for the Knicks. Like, and that's, you know, I don't mean to penalize him for that. I just feel like, again, we're talking about the sixth man of the year. We're talking about a spark off the bench. We're talking about meaningful, consistent contributions off the bench for a team. And Quickly's numbers when he's coming off the bench are only 12, 4, and 3, which are worse than Malcolm Brogdon, especially when you take into account the, the fact that Malcolm Brogdon's much more efficient across the board in terms of shooting percentage. So, Because of the fact that I feel like off the bench this season, Brogdon has been more effective, I'm going to ultimately land, I ultimately landed on him to win the award. It was super close. I think if you go either way, I understand. I just, again, I feel like the determining factor for me is that Brogdon came, had all of his games coming off the bench, quickly started 21 games where his numbers ballooned a ton, and off the bench, um, statistically quickly was worse across the board than Brogdon was in the games that they both played off the bench. So, that's my thoughts on Six Man. I thought it was pretty interesting. It'd be cool to see a Celtic win an award. So fingers crossed that Brogdon uh, is able to, to secure that. Moving on to Most Improved. Now, this is an award that really has pissed me off in the past, to be honest with you, because I feel like everybody's, you know, has a different idea of what it represents. And that's kind of the case with a lot of these awards, but especially with Most Improved. Like, last year, Ja won it, I want to say, which is just ridiculous. Like, I'll double check that. Um, and I guess I'll edit this out if, if he didn't do it. But, okay, let's just assume that Ja won it last year, right? How stupid is that? Like, Ja was a, a borderline all-star, if not 
he was an all-star the season before. So he we already knew that Jaw was ascending. Jaw was the second overall pick in the draft. Jaw has had sky-high expectations since day one in the league, and he's never really disappointed. I think we all expected Jaw to become a, a borderline 25-point-per-game scorer, which he was last season. Like, And again, credit to him. I just feel like... You know, his development last season was just kind of on track with what we thought it was going to be before. Like, I don't think he necessarily exceeded expectations by that much. And that really bothered me. So that's kind of what I look for in the award. I look for basically the opposite of that, rather. I look for somebody that totally reinvented themselves and exceeded every expectation that we had for them based on, you know, how their career was going previously. And if you disagree with me on that, that's totally fine. I'm just trying to explain why I landed on this. There were three people that come to mind. Um, third on the list was Jalen Brunson. You know, he jumped from 16 points a game to 24 points per game. Um, but I think that this was mostly an expected leap, like we knew with the money he acquired in the offseason, the contract that he received, the switch from going playing alongside Luka Doncic, the most ball-dominant player in the entire NBA, um, to going to the Knicks, where he is the starting point guard and um, their primary shot creator. It made sense that we were going to see a leap from him, so I, I'd never really considered Brunson, but he was third on my list. The real debate uh, going around, you know, I, I would say is between Laurie Markkinen and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Shea took a massive leap this season. There's no questions about it. He went from scoring 25 points a game uh, to scoring 31 points a game, but it's also worth mentioning that he played in a lot more games, and the big difference from last year is that the team is now competitive this year. Like, he's on a team that, you know, again, they snuck in, but they did make it into the Western Conference play-in tournament, so that's worth something. He's playing meaningful basketball, unlike last season that was like a total tank fest. So he definitely took a leap. I just... I couldn't, I couldn't do it with Shea. Like, despite the fact that, you know, he's had a really awesome season, again, just like the jaw thing, I feel like this is kind of on, like, real ones knew, right? Real ones knew that Shea was, was going to be really, really good. Did we know he was going to score 30 points a game this quick? Probably not. But we all knew he was a young, ascending star in this league that was going to make multiple all-star teams. So I'm not that shocked by the development of Shea Gilgis-Alexander, so I ultimately landed on Laurie Marketing. I feel like he's a guy. Now, again, he did benefit just like Jalen Brunson. He benefited from a team change. He went from Cleveland over to Utah that had virtually no expectations before the season. So I understand there's an argument to be made there. But he went from 15-6 and six to averaging 26-9. and nine. And again, I know the Jazz, they finished 13 in the West and whatever. Um, or maybe, maybe 12 in the West, I guess, whatever. But bottom line, they, they didn't make the play-in tournament. But they were competitive for most of the season. And Laurie Markkinen looked like a legit star. He, the way he attacked the hoop, how aggressive he was at creating his own shot, where I feel like the consensus opinion on him was just like a catch-and-shoot wing with a lot of size. That's kind of what people thought of him. He played a lot better defense this season, just the way he attacked the basket. There were no questions asked that he was the best player on his team, and he looked like a star. He made the All-Star team. Um, we're going to talk about him for All-NBA in a little bit as well. And, you know, I know Shea was in his fifth season and, and Markkinen was in his sixth, but I just... And so they're similar in that regard. But I just don't think there was anybody before this season that saw Laurie Markin and taking the leap that he did. I thought he totally reinvented himself as a player. Um, and he's considered an all-star these days. And he deserves to be. Um, I think he's a, my easy choice for, for most improved. Moving on, let's go to a nice easy one here. Uh, let's get into Rookie of the Year. Now, this is an award that, to be honest with you, is, is basically been wrapped up for quite some time. Uh, let me just go through... 
my honorable mention, first of all, I, I put four guys down here. I had Walker Kessler in fourth. I know he's been really good. Um, he was really good, especially late season. His numbers took a massive leap, and he's a really incredible rim protector. Um, again, I think if Timberwolves fans could just trade him for Rudy Gobert straight up, uh, they would do that. He's been that good for the Jazz. Um, but I, again, I finished with him at fourth just because I felt like there were three guys that were better from start to end of the season. In third, I had Benedict Matherin. You know, he's somebody that came out the gates really hot and and basically has been averaging 17 points a game the entire season. Um, he's obviously hit some lulls here and there, but he plays hard. Um, he averages four rebounds as well. He really doesn't pass the rock too much. Uh, but that's what the team needs him to do, right? He's playing on a, on a pretty bad basketball team in Indiana for what it's worth. And he has two really good creators alongside him. Um, and Tyrese Halliburton and even Nemhard off the bench for them is able to provide, you know, a, a true, like kind of an old school point guard feel. So they really just asked Matherin to score the ball. He's been really good all season. A lot of people would put Kessler over Matherin, but I feel like Matherin's just been better for the entirety of the season. There was even some buzz for him being the rookie of the year during like weeks one and two, because that's how impressed impressed people were with how well Matherin was playing but he's been awesome for the Pacers so um, he's in, in third for me Jalen Williams for the Thunder he's made a really big push as of late like his last couple months he's been you know right there with you know my choice and, and as a winner for this um, and he's been sneaky the second best player on a team that's competitive in Oklahoma City you could argue him or Giddy. I, I think Jalen Williams has been a little bit better just the past couple months, but he's incredible. He, hits, he averaged 14, 5, and 3. How athletic he is, how hard he defends, um, you know, how hard he attacks the basket. It's really fun watching him and Shea play together because the way that they can just get to their spots is, is really impressive. Um, he had a really great season. Um, I just think if he had maybe played at the same level uh, all year as opposed to just how he played the last couple months, um, he would have a better case. But the ultimate winner, it's it's Paulo Bancaro. He averaged 27-4. and four. He basically started averaging that the second he got in the league. You know, week two, we, everybody was just like, yep, that makes sense. It makes sense that Paulo Bancaro of the Magic, why he was the first overall pick in last year's draft. Um, again, this is a you know six-month award, if you will. You have to look at the entire season. And even if you want to make an argument that Jalen Williams has been better like the last month, which I think is hard to do. Like, I, I even just looked at the last 15 games of the season, and Paulo's still averaging more points. Granted, he has a little bit higher usage rate and everything like that in Orlando. But Paulo's incredible. Again, he averaged 27-4. and four. Once that three ball develops, it's going to get really scary. Um, definitely a lot of all-stars in the future for Paulo Bencaro. He's going to be a stud. Moving on to the biggest shit show. Like this is an like this is an absolute shit show in defensive player of the year. I I do not know how to evaluate this award. I didn't know how to do it last year. I s certainly don't this year. Uh it's really tough. Like with defensive player of the year, like historically it's usually a big, right? It's usually somebody that protects the rim and gets, you know, gaudy block steal numbers preferably. Um I know Gobert's won it like what, like three or four times or whatever. I just my personal preference is I tend to lean on the side of versatility, right? Like on the side of somebody that like takes on the best player in virtually every matchup. I think that's a big plus somebody that's versatile and who they can defend somebody that doesn't back down from a challenge in terms of guarding the other team's best player. I know that that's not always up to the defensive player himself, but it's always nice when that's the case and just somebody that can guard multiple positions. That's what I value the most. I feel like, especially with the way the game is trending, um, where positionless basketball has really taken over more than we've ever seen it before. Like basically everybody on the court can do has every skill regardless of their size and what their you know what's listed on their on their trading card or whatever in terms of their position, right? So this is tough for me. 
I'll tell you right now that the consensus two guys are Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brooke Lopez. Those are the two. Let's start with Lopez. Lopez, I think early season was the favorite. You know, he's averaging five defensive rebounds a game. He has the, you know, gaudy block numbers. He's averaging two and a half blocks and he's averaging a steal a game. Um, his defensive rating is a 107, which is pretty solid. My thing with Lopez is is he's exactly what I was talking about and what I, I don't gravitate toward in, in terms of defensive player of the year because he's he's a rim protector. He's he's probably the best rim protector in the league this season. Like, and I I get it's I, I, I don't mean to say that it's like a negative term. Like, it's important. It's important to have rim protection. I just feel like you know what he's going to do. He's going to play drop coverage. He's going to make the right decision. He's going to contest shots. He's going to make you feel him when you attack the basket. Like, nobody wants to play Milwaukee because you're running into Brooke Lopez and Giannis every time you get to the hoop. Like, that shit sucks. There's no doubt about that. I just, I don't think that that's as valuable. I don't think it's it's as difficult to find those guys. Like, I think you can find a couple different, you know, Brooke Lopez types on different teams. I just think if if he still gets matched up with Jason Tatum on the perimeter, it's it's going to be game over. It, it's going to be hot sauce. Like, he's not going to be able to stay in front of them. He just doesn't have the foot speed for it. But to his credit, he had an awesome season. Um, you know, again, he has really great block numbers. He's a great rim protector. But he's in a good situation too, right? He's surrounded by Drew Holiday, who I think is the best defensive guard in the league. He has Giannis on his team who gobbles up every rebound. And I don't think we need to talk about the physicality of Giannis. We all understand that. He's just in a really good situation, and I wasn't as impressed with him as others. Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, I think he's the odds-on favorite. This is the only award where I actually looked into, like, who was the favorite, because I, I, I had no idea where to even start for this award, to be honest with you. He's averaging, same as Lopez, five defensive rebounds a game. He's averaging a half block more per game. He's up to three blocks per game and a steal. Um, same thing as Lopez again, 107 defensive rating. He played in 63 games for what it's worth, so I, I only note that because as of next year, technically, he would not be eligible to receive Defensive Player of the Year because the minimum number of games required is 65, so something to, to make note of. Um, I know Jaron Jackson's had injury struggles over the course of his career, so 63 games for him, you'll probably take that if you're a Grizzlies fan. He's really good. I think he's more versatile uh, defensively than than Brooke Lopez. I think he guards in the perimeter a lot better. His wingspan's incredible. His anticipation is incredible. And maybe I, I'm take, I'm thinking about this too much, but my frustration with Jaron Jackson is that he has a weakness in his game. Defensively, I guess you could argue. I don't know if weakness is the best term, but he fouls a lot. He, he fouls a lot. Let's, let's come out and say it. He fouls the shit out of dudes. He averages nearly four fouls a game. I tried to look up and see how many times Jaron Jackson Jr., again, of the Grizzlies, um, has fouled out of games this season. I couldn't find that number, so if anybody has it, let me know. But that is a problem for them. It was a problem in last year's playoffs where he basically fouled out of like 50% of the games through like the first two rounds. Like you can look that up. It was crazy. And even in the games where he doesn't foul out, like he gets into foul trouble all the time, which affects his ability to stay on the court. They need him. They need him out there. There's no Steven Adams the rest of the season. Uh, there's no Brandon Clark the rest of the season. Their front court depth is really thin. And in the playoffs where you want to play your star players more time and the game, you know, it gets a little bit more physical, right? Like, I wouldn't be surprised for, for Jaron Jackson Jr. to experience, you know, the same foul trouble. Like, that's that just frustrates me. It's like, how do you how do you not hack guys? And again, he has to get those blocks somehow. He has to make gambles. He has to make plays for them to be, you know, for him to be as scary of a defender as it is. But I, I do think that that doesn't get talked about enough is how often he fouls dudes. And it always seems to be a problem, especially in the bigger games from what I watched of the Grizzlies this season. 
So where does that leave us, right? Um, a guy I wanted to mention real quick is an honorable mention. I, I talked about him earlier. Uh, his season's over. Jaden McDaniels of the Timberwolves uh, punched a wall, broke his hand, like I mentioned before. When I watch, like, again, this is just eye test, just vibes from what I've seen going around in league pass. I think Jaden McDaniels is up there with one of the most impressive defenders I've seen this season. He's like the quintessential guy that's like, okay, if we're playing the Clippers, I'm guarding Kawhi. We're playing the Celtics, I'm guarding Tatum. We're playing the Warriors, all right, I'm guarding Steph. Like, he, he takes on the best assignment every single game. And for that, I just want to tip my cap. Like, it, it's cool to watch. I think that's fun. I think that's old school. Um, he's a lanky wing. He, he he really just jumps off the screen. Like, he's he's kind of got that Pat Bev effect where it looks like he's doing a lot. Um, whether he is or not, I don't know. But he jumps off the screen to me defensively, and he's a great player. He's not even really mentioned in the top finalist for this award, which I thought was interesting. So I didn't get too outlandish and give it to him. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets this award in the future. I think I think he's that good of a defensive player. I landed on Bam Adebayo for Defensive Player of the Year. I don't know. Statistically, it do he doesn't stack up compared to Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brooke Lopez, but I still landed on him, and this is why. He had seven defensive rebounds a game. He had to steal a game, a block a game. 111 defensive rating, which isn't as good as the other two guys for, for what that's worth. I don't know. But I genuinely believe he might be the most versatile defender in the NBA. I feel like a lot of people picked him to win the award last season and the big complaint for why Bam didn't get it and the big reason why Bam didn't get it is he didn't play in enough games. I don't know exactly how many games he played in last year, but I'll tell you, I felt like he was just as good, if not better, of a defender this season and he played in 75 games. And Miami was still competitive, right? They finished as the seventh seed in the Eastern Conference. By They're most likely going to beat the Hawks tomorrow and they're going to end up playing the Celtics, which is going to blow because uh, I don't want to see Bam. I don't want to see the Heat, but... I do think that I just don't understand why there's not more buzz around Bam. Is it just because he doesn't have the same block numbers as the other guys? Like again, I don't. I feel like nobody really knows what's going on with Defensive Player of the Year. Like nobody really knows how to interpret it. But what I do know is when I watch Bam, he can get switched onto anybody. He can get switched onto a guard. He can get switched onto a, a wing. He can guard bigs. Like he's six nine. He's got a crazy long wingspan. His foot speed is perfect. And I just I watch him guard up. And maybe he's not as good of a rim protector as, as the two guys that will likely get it in Jackson and Brooke Lopez. But I feel like he can get a stop on literally any player in the NBA. Um, he's absolutely terrifying to play against. I think he's had his best year yet. He played in 75 games. He answered the durability concerns. And I don't really understand why there's not more buzz around him to win it. But with that, I don't give a shit really who wins it because I don't really know enough about how people interpret this award. Uh, I'm sure you could make an argument for Draymond. You can make an argument for Evan Mobley. But... I landed on Bam. I, I think he's, you know, gun to my head. I think he's the best defender in the league, and, and we'll go with that. Let's pay the bills. Let's pay the bills, baby. Let's talk MVP. Now, I actually was going to get this podcast out last night, and I was trying to – it took a lot of prep to do this. So, you know, pat myself on the back, did some little, little internet research for this. It took a while, and it was tough. Like, I literally decided to hold off and do the podcast today – because I couldn't decide on the MVP. Like, that is how close it is. There's there's three guys. We know the guys. It's Giannis, it's Jokic, it's Embiid. And it's one of those guys that's going to get it. I haven't been, I haven't, I can't say I've put this level of work into the MVP in past years, but I, I really don't remember an MVP race this close. And let me just preface all this by saying, like, I don't care who gets it. I don't care who gets it because as long as it's one of those three guys, it's not, no one got robbed. Nobody should be crying and whining and bitching about their guy not getting it because you can make a very, very, very strong case for Giannis, Jokic, and Embiid. 
I'm just going to go through it and go give the case for each player, and I'll give you my pick at the end. Let's start off with Giannis. 31, 12, and 6. <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, on 55% shooting from the field, 28% from the line. Um, or, or excuse me, 55% from the field, 28 from three, and 65% from the line. Still not great at free throws. Um, kind of actually regressed in that free throw category. He played in 63 games. Again, I mentioned that he's eligible for the award this year, but if this was next season and he plays in 63 games, he would not be eligible for the MVP because there's a 65-game minimum. Just worth noting. The Bucks were 11-8 and eight without Giannis, so they were still an above 500 team. They were still a, a solid team. Um, but ultimately, the Bucks were the best team in basketball, right? I mean, they finished with what, like almost 60 wins, 59 wins? No, 58 wins, sorry. 58 wins for the Bucks. They were the, the best team in basketball, and he was easily the best player on the best team. Uh, again, you can get into some other stuff. That's the main case for, for Giannis. Jokic. Jokic has won it the past two seasons, and I should mention that Giannis won it the two seasons prior to, to Jokic winning it the last two seasons. Jokic averaged a triple-double. He averaged 25, 12, and 10 on 63% shooting from the field, 38% shooting from three, and 82% shooting from the line. Unbelievable shooting splits for this guy. He played in 69 games, so he played in six more games than Giannis. The Nuggets were 5-8 and eight without Jokic. They were a below 500 team. Uh, the on-off numbers are absolutely insane with Jokic in terms of like you know the team's efficiency, the team's scoring, the team's plus-minus when Giannis when Jokic is on the court versus off the court, it's insane. He has the best case in that area of the argument. And all the advanced stats just think he's the greatest player ever, which he might be, according to the advanced stats. Who knows? Um, so that's mainly the case for Jokic. I think he genuinely, like, the, the Nuggets story all season is, like, how are we going to survive the minutes without Jokic? He is that important to the team. And that's even with them. Again, they got back Jamal Murray. They got back Michael Porter Jr. Two guys that I feel like I'm higher than consensus on in terms of the outlook and what they can provide for a team. Even with that, like they couldn't figure out how to run an offense without Jokic. And again, they were five and eight without him. And third and finally, Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid led the league in scoring. He had 33 points a game, 10 rebounds, 4 assists on 55% shooting from the field, 33% from three, 86% shooting from the line. He played in 66 games. So again, uh, Giannis played in 63, Embiid played in 66, Jokic played in 69. The 76ers were 11-5 and five without Embiid. Really, really good. Um, they still were able to have a really solid record and have the best record without any of these teams compared to, you know, the best record without their superstar out of any of these three uh, finalists. I feel like Embiid dominated the narrative, right? There's been a whole lot of, you know, whining about Embiid not getting it and people feeling bad for Embiid, which I think is fair. I think you can feel bad for Joel Embiid. He's finished second in MVP the last two seasons. And like I talked about before, he doesn't even have a first-team All-NBA to his name, to my knowledge, because Jokic has gotten that too, because as currently constructed, you can only have one center. And, you know, Giannis has his two MVPs, Jokic has his two MVPs, and Embiid doesn't. So I feel like people want Embiid to get it, because he is that good, right? He he does, you know, deserve recognition. He is on a, a similar playing field as these guys. I don't even think you can make an argument against that. Um, and he's had the most dominant and memorable performances throughout the year, is what I'd say about Embiid. Like, he had, I think, the most impressive game out of any game this entire season. I know Dame had 70, and Mitchell had 70, and there were some other incredible games. Embiid put up 59-11 rebounds, 8 assists, and 7 blocks against the Jazz in November. 
And again, this isn't during the midst of like the Jazz started like really, really good. Like the Jazz were like, I want to say like a top four seed in the West at this point. And Embiid showed up and dropped 59, 11, 8, and 7. And if you go back and watch that game, I did do that. It is as good as advertised. Like he just looks like a god out there. Like he was unbelievable. And then you look at like his performance where he had 52 against the Celtics just last week to close. Like a lot of people feel like that performance in a national TV game against, you know, the second best team in the Eastern Conference would be enough to win him the award. So where does that leave us? You know, now that we've gone through the the case for all three of the MVP finalists, you know, what's my pick, right? I feel like it's less about the argument for each specific player because all three of the arguments I just laid out are incredible. Like in any given season, like you compare that, you know, you can't do this, but if you wanted to take, you know, this, these guys' stat lines and, and their storylines and everything like that and compare it to MVP winners of the previous seasons, like it's there's no doubt that all three of these guys are playing at an MVP level. Like, let's just get that clear. It's less about the specific argument for the specific player, and it's more about how you interpret the award. In my opinion, there are three different ways that you can, you know, what there are three different ways to look at MVP and what it means and how you determine who should get that award. I think the first way to look at it is, you know, probably closest to the definition, right? It is the most valuable player. Who is the most valuable player to their specific team in the entire league? If that is how you are evaluating the award, there's one choice, and it's Jokic. Jokic is incredible. Statistically, he's averaging a triple-double, like we said. And the on-and-off numbers speak for themselves. The on-and-off numbers should be a very, very, very important to you if you believe that the award is the most valuable player. The Nuggets are 5-8 and eight without Jokic. You watch them play. They look like fish out of water when Jokic isn't on the court. He is the most valuable um, because again, we've determined that the Sixers without Embiid are still a really good team. The Bucks without Giannis are still a good team. The Nuggets somehow kind of stink without Jokic. So he is the most valuable. If you care about the storytelling element of it, right? The narrative of it. I think that's Embiid, right? This is his time. He's waited in line, right? He's come in second the past couple years. He's improved each and every season. It's his best year yet. He's leading the league in scoring. When you look back on this season in five years, the first player you're probably going to think about is probably Embiid, right? He has had the most memorable year. He's dominated primetime performances. He he bent Jokic over the last time that they matched up. Like, he dominated him. He put up 40-something on his head, um, completely outplayed Jokic. Dominated the Celtics last week, had the best stat lines out of anybody this entire season. You know, 33, 10, and 4 is incredible. If you care about narratives, you care about the, the you know, how memorable the season was, your answer is Joel Embiid. If you're like me, and when all else fails, you want to give the award to the best player, preferably on the best team, but the best player, there's only one guy for that, and it's Giannis. That's ultimately who I landed on. And it was tough. And something that affected me as well was the fact that he played in 63 games, right? He played in 63. He wouldn't even be eligible for this award next season, which is something to make note of. But at the end of the day, he played three less games than Embiid. He played six less games than Jokic. And part of the reason he played in such little games is because the team was so good that they really, you know, they've had the one seed in the East locked up for basically a week now, and he really hasn't played much recently. So am I really going to penalize him for being two games under that minimum when I think he's the best player on the best team? No, I'm not. I think when all else fails, the best player on the best team 
as like a tiebreaker is what I go to. And you can argue that that's not what the award represents. And that's not what, you know, it's not the best player award. It's the MVP. I understand that. I just think when in doubt, you just give it to the best player on the best team. Because when you look back at history and you want to figure out who was the best player during that season, MVP is what we got. And so I like to give it to Giannis. Um, I think if you, you know, if you could only pick one player on your team uh, to have for this playoff run, the pick is Giannis. If every single general manager, um, you know, disbanded their teams and they had a fantasy draft, the first overall pick in that draft is Giannis. I don't care about him being slightly older than some of the other guys like Luca that could be in the conversation. Giannis is the pick. Giannis is the best player in the world. He does the most defensively out of any of these three guys. Um, and he's had a really incredible season in which he averaged 31, 12, and 6. Again, that being said, you can give it to Jokic, you can give it to Embiid, you can give it to Giannis. I really don't care. All these guys are deserving. What I don't want to see is bitching from the other two fan base, but you know it's going to happen. Um, but it was a re- it's really fun to talk about, and you guys can let me know what you think about my MVP choice. All right, baby, we are in the home stretch now. Um, wanted to go through um, the all-NBA teams, all-rookie teams, all-defense teams, all that stuff to put a bow on this episode. Let's start off, and we'll make this a little bit quicker now that the meat, uh, you know, the big, the big gun is taken care of. MVP has been settled, in my opinion. Let's get to all rookie. Uh, we talked about a lot of these guys, obviously, during the Rookie of the Year um, award segment. Um, this is my first team all rookie. Uh, Benedict Matherin of the Pacers at guard, uh, Jade Nivey of the of the Pistons at the other guard spot, uh, Paulo Bancaro at forward. Uh, of the Magic, Jalen Williams of the Thunder at the other forward, and Walker Kessler as the center. Uh, we talked about most of those guys. You know, I haven't talked much about Jaden Ivey, but he's been really solid. Statistically, he's probably had, you know, the next, besides Matherin, the, the, the best season at guard. Um, he's been getting a lot of minutes for the Pistons because all they can do is lose, so he's getting free reign to cook. Um, he's had a pretty good season. I don't know if he's necessarily exceeded expectations for being the fourth pick in the draft, but he's been pretty good. Um, and we talked about all the other four guys on the first team as well. Second team, uh, Shaden Sharp of the Trailblazers. I have him as my first guard. Andrew Nemhard of the Pacers, who I mentioned briefly of the Pacers. I have him as my second guard. Uh, Keegan Murray of the Kings. Jabari Smith of the Rockets. And then Jalen Duran of the Pistons as well. Sharp is super fun to watch. Um, definitely encourage you guys to watch the Trailblazers if you can stomach a, a lack of defense and talent. But... Um, between Dame, Simons, and Sharp, they have three of the most exciting guys to watch. They all play the guard position. The guy jumps out the gym. Um, he's a pretty impressive shot creator as well that um, definitely held down the fort. He was really the only relevant blazer playing for them during the last couple of weeks of the season. So he definitely racked up some highlights there. Nemhard, who I want to say was a second-round pick out of Gonzaga. Uh, he was a four-year player at Gonzaga and came into the league and immediately looked pro-ready, as you would expect of a four-year player. Um Definitely like it kind of like an old school point guard vibe. He fits in really well with Halliburton. They always have, you know, between him and Halliburton, a really great um, setup man for some of their other players like Matherin. Um, and I feel like he really impressed in his first season. Keegan Murray, um, he kind of flew under the radar, especially for how great the Kings were. Like, again, the Kings are the third seed in the West. Like, that's still crazy to say. And he was, a, uh, I want to say he started or maybe he came off the bench um, because of Harrison Barnes. But he played, he's been in the rotation all season long and he's been really solid for the Kings. And he's really the only guy on this entire list that was playing extremely competitive basketball all year. Like, as weird as it sounds that someone on the Kings uh, was in that situation. But I, I think it's really important to recognize how good he was on a good team. He just wasn't as impressive as Paulo or Jalen to make first team. 
Jabari Smith, he's somebody that got a lot of shit early on in the season, especially because um, his numbers kind of disappointed in terms of him being the third overall pick in the draft. And uh, before the draft, there was a lot of buzz about him potentially going as high as one. Um, so I think people might have been a little disappointed. I think it could just be because, you know, with Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green, you know, they take a lot of shots. They don't they don't decide to share the ball very much. When you have guards like that, it's difficult. They're not, you know, they're certainly not set-up men in terms of looking to get other people else involved. Um, but Jabari Smith was still really good. He had some great games, especially against the Celtics. He played pretty well. Um, you know, definitely has some really high two-way potential as well, and he was an easy choice for second team. Jalen Duran, um, really the only other relevant center um, in this entire draft class. He was pretty impressive for the Pacers. He honestly looks like a little baby Dwight Howard. Um, he's really fun to watch, and, and he's going to be uh, future is really bright for him as well. First team all defense, um, similar to Defensive Player of the Year, just a total shit show, and it's certainly up for some interpretation as to what you uh, as a voter would value in, in terms of defense and. I think it is a little bit easier than picking just one player outright because at least you have some positions to base this off of. Um, I think it'll be really interesting if they do, just a, a quick tidbit, it'll be really interesting if they, they don't have positions for first-team all-defense you know, next year. Um, I can't imagine that they would if they're switching to this like positionless thing, but I feel like we would just be on a fast track to just, you know, having like one guard out of the, you know, the 15 people on an all defense team. So um, just something to keep in mind. But anyway, Drew Holiday was a super easy addition for the guards. And I feel like he's in his own tier, you know, defensively. I feel like he was on another level this season. His offense increased a ton. He was so important to that Bucks team. Um, he really had an incredible season, especially as Middleton was working his way back. He was a no-brainer for first-team all-defense in the first guard position. The second guard position, this is where, like, I, I really don't know, man. You could say any a lot of these guys. Um, I landed on Herb Jones, um, guard for the Pelicans. Uh, people could argue he's a wing as well. I, I tried to look it up, and it looked like he played most of his minutes at the shooting guard position this season. Um, and he's kind of someone similar to McDaniels, where he got a lot of buzz last year. He definitely takes pride in guarding the other team's best player. He's got such a long wingspan. Um, he really does kind of jump off the screen in terms of his defense, um, and he had a really solid season, so I landed on him there. Defensive player of the year, not defensive player of the year, for first team all defense forward, um, you know, some guys I already talked about, I won't spend much time on it. Jaron Jackson Jr. was my first forward. Jaden McDaniels was my second forward. And then Bam was my first center um, fitting uh, since I gave him defensive player of the year, in my opinion. Uh, don't want to spend much time on that. Let's move on to the second team. Again, the guard spot is tough, man. It was really tough to think about. Uh, I feel like I'm really low on this guy just as a, a fan of the team, um, but I still landed on Marcus Smart. Uh, I know he's had a pretty disappointing season, um, especially after he was, you know, really, you know, solid for us offensively last year. He was coming off a defensive player of the year season last year, which was a bit controversial, but he still works his ass off. I think he played in only 61 games, but again, there's, you know, the 65 game minimum is not effect in effect for this season. Um, I still think he, he does. He makes enough wow defensive plays um, that are deserving of having him on this team. The second guard I had was Alex Caruso. I know the Bulls have flown under the radar a lot. They've struggled, especially without Lonzo, um, but he's still somebody that, you know, defends his ass off. I'm really impressed with Caruso every time I watch him play. Um, the next two forwards on the second team all defense, I had Evan Mobley and Draymond Green, you know, really important to their respective teams, you know, a, a part of two of the best defensive units. Draymond especially, um, I'd probably have him 
a little higher than Mobley just because I feel like the Warriors, they still, they lack size. They obviously moved on from Wiseman at the deadline, and I'm, I'm continuously impressed with what Draymond's able to provide um, and really make up for their lack of sides because he's he's truly their floor general out there on defense, and there's there's really nobody like him in the, in the NBA. Um, but again, I just don't think he had the stats or, um, you know, took on the enough of tough, you know, one-on-one defensive assignments to have him on first team. But again, Mobley and Draymond as the second team defense forwards. And then uh, second team center, I had Brooke Lopez, who I talked about before. Let's move on uh, to the final big talking point here. And this is this is first team all NBA. This was probably the toughest thing. You know, MVP was probably the toughest, I can't lie. But creating the all NBA teams was really difficult this year because the main storyline was you know, because we don't have this minimum number of games, I know I keep talking about it, because that's not in place yet, there's so much up to interpretation because so many guys miss substantial minutes. It's like, do you want to take the better player who played in less games versus the guy that was consistent and out there? It's really kind of weighing that within yourself and setting your own guidelines um, in, into who makes these teams. So the first the guard position especially was tough. But it wasn't tough for me to put Luka on first-team All-NBA. He was far and away the best guard in the NBA this season. He is the best guard in the NBA, period. In my opinion, he averaged 32-9-9. He played in 66 games, so he hits the minimum, uh, the 65-game minimum that's going to be in place next season. Uh, I know that they were 38-44, and but a bad season for, you know, a bad season for Luka is 32-9-9. Like, are you kidding me? Like, he's doing stuff you know, other guys could only dream of. Like, he, he really is that good, uh, and, and he was the easy addition uh, to first-team All-NBA at the guard spot. The second guard, like, my guards from, you know, the second guard and first-team All-NBA all the way down to third, it's a, t- it's a total crapshoot. Like, I do not know. I was weighing it back and forth, and ultimately I landed on picking the person who I feel like is the best player and had the best season when he was out there as opposed to valuing the number of games that they played. I landed on Steph Curry for first team all NBA in the second guard position. He averaged 29, six and six. I think just watching him play, Steph is as good as he's ever been. Like from the final, like the playoffs all the way through now, he's playing the best basketball of his entire career. He's stronger. He's better defensively. He's somehow better going to the basket. The shooting numbers are, are, you know, basically just as good as they've ever been. The issue is that he only played in 56 games, right? Like again, he wouldn't be eligible next year. That's a low number. You know, he still hit, you know, I think the secondary benchmark for that is like 55 games. I know a lot of people kind of use that as like the the minimum um, or, 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 you know, a lot of voters use that as like their personal minimum for people to be in consideration of that award because 55 games is, you know, two thirds of the season. They had to be out there for at least two thirds of the season. Steph did hit that. And the Warriors are good. I mean, they're 44 and 38. He's as valuable to that team as ever. And I, I genuinely believe, you know, he's the second best guard in the NBA. That's what I landed on. Um, moving on to the forwards. Um, Giannis is the first forward. Already talked about him in MVP. That's a no-brainer. The second forward, also a total no-brainer. We haven't talked about him yet, but it's Jason Tatum. This was such an easy decision for me. Tatum averaged 39-5. and five. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? As Celtics fans, we get to sit here and we had a dude that averaged 39-5. and five. I know all the stats are inflated, so like, you know, 30 points is like, you know, barely even impressive anymore, it feels like. But Tatum was awesome. Tatum was on the second best team in basketball. He played in 74 games. He was really available. Um, and he was awesome. And he did it on both ends of the court. He was, you know, the best player on the second best team in the NBA. He was an easy addition to first team All-NBA. So congrats to Tatum. 
The center spot, um, I didn't spend a ton of time thinking about it. I ended up putting Embiid. You know, I didn't give him MVP, but I did put him at, as first-team All-NBA, which obviously means that Jokic is going to be the second-team center. You could flip a coin. I don't want to sp- spend more time talking about Embiid versus Jokic, but I landed on Embiid for first-team All-NBA center. Second team, at the guard spot, Shea. I went with Shea as my first guard. I feel like this was actually a relatively easy choice. We talked about him during Most Improved, but you know he averaged 31 points a game. He was out there a lot. I want to say he, he played a nearly set. Uh, he played in like 68 games, I think is the number for Shea. Uh, and he was really, really good. You know, if they made it into the playing game, Shea had an awesome season. Uh, my second guard, I had Donovan Mitchell. Now, Cleveland was really good this season as well. You know, they were 51 and 31, and Mitchell was a huge part of that. He had some really memorable performances, including the game he scored 70. You know, on the season, he averaged 28, 4, and 4. He was available for 68 games. I feel like he was a perfect blend of availability, uh, production, and being on a really good team. So I feel pretty solid about where I landed for the second team all NBA guards, but because uh, I think that regardless of if you want to have these guys on set first, second, or third team, they should, they should both be on one of your All-NBA teams. The second forward spot, uh, or my, my first forward spot on my second team All-NBA, this was another easy one for me. This was a no-brainer. It was Jalen Brown. Now, it's a bit controversial because, you know, I think in past years he's been listed as, like, technically a shooting guard. But if you watch the Celtics this season, you know that the majority of the minutes that J- Jalen Brown played, he was playing the three, right? He was playing, he was playing the wing. Um, because he was usually out there with either Smart and Brogdon, Smart and White, you know, some combination of two of those three guards. That was our starting lineup for most of the season, meaning that Jalen Brown was technically our small forward. Um, and he suits in, uh, he fits in a lot nicer there because, you know, the forward position was a lot less competitive than the guard position this year. Jalen Brown was 27, 7, and 4. He played the 67 games. Again, he was the second best player on the second best team in the NBA. I think he's like a, a top 15, 20 player in the entire league. You know, we know as Celtics fans for stretches that he was, you know, it wasn't surprising when he was the best player on the court on nights where Tatum just didn't have it. Um, Jalen Brown was awesome, and he did it on both ends of the court. He was a no-brainer. Second team All-NBA, the second forward position, Julius Randle. Um, he's somebody I haven't talked about yet on this entire podcast. Um, again, I think the forward position was definitely the weakest um, this season. And But that being said, he averaged 25, 10, and 4. Um, he was really solid on a Knicks team that ended up being the, what was it, they, the, the fifth seed in, in the East, um, finishing with 47 wins. Um, he was available. He was out there a lot. Um, he definitely had a big rebound season after, you know, his numbers kind of plummeted after getting the big contract last year. He had a nice bounce back year. He was on a good team. Not much more needs to be said. Uh, and then second team center, as I mentioned before, I have Jokic. Third team All-NBA, my last round of All-NBA guys. Uh, De'Aaron Fox was my first guard I had. We talked about him a bit during the clutch, but just to rehash his numbers, he averaged 24, 4, and 6. He played in 73 games. He was on the third seed in the Western Conference. Fox was awesome. Fox was out there a lot. Um, Fox, you know, you could argue he was the best player on his team. I think Sabonis was a little bit more valuable, but he was a huge part of what the Kings did this season. Maybe a little controversial here, um, but I felt bad not fitting him on somewhere. I put Dame Lillard on my third team All-NBA in the last guard spot here. Dame had probably, when he was playing, the best season of his entire career, which kind of feels crazy because he's been in the league for a while now. But the dude averaged 32-5-7. and seven. Um, I know the Blazers kind of stunk. And that's really what, it, what you have to value, right? Like, I feel like Dame himself was so awesome. He was so fun to watch. He was as good as he'd ever been. He had a 70-point game. But the issue is that he didn't end up playing in that many games because they shut him down late season like we talked about a couple weeks ago. And they ended up with the fifth worst record in the NBA. 
So, you know, he they were literally the worst team in the NBA out of the teams that weren't trying to lose all season. The only teams worse were Charlotte, Detroit, um, Houston, and San Antonio. Like, literally, they were the fifth worst team in the NBA. But I do feel like Dame had, you know, had a borderline career season for what it's worth, at least individually. And I felt bad not getting him on there. So I put Dame in third team all NBA. The first forward spot in third team all NBA, I went with LeBron. LeBron just snuck in, you know, making, you know, the, you know, thinking man's minimum in, in 55 games. That's how many he played. He averaged 29, 8, and 7 in year 20 or whatever this is. You know, the Lakers were solid. They finished as, as 43 and 39. Um, again, forward position was pretty weak. Um, for what it's worth, I don't think he was the most valuable Laker, but because the position uh, requirements are still in place, um, LeBron had an awesome season, and I think he's deserving of making all you know all NBA while he still can, while you know playing less than sixty five games. The second forward spot, I had Laurie Markkinen. We talked about him during Most Improved. He had a really awesome season for a semi competitive Jazz team, um, so he made my third team All NBA. And last player I want to talk about that I hadn't mentioned before too much, um, the last center spot, the third team on NBA center. This was a no-brainer, super easy. It was Sabonis. Sabonis averaged 19, 12, and 7, and he played in 79 games. Again, 19, 12, and 7, and he played in 79 games. That's impressive. 79 games, you're like a you're an Iron Man in this year's NBA. Like you only missed three games all season. That's really impressive. The Kings were good. He's a huge part of that team. He's he's honestly fun to watch. He's, he plays like, you know, again, he plays like a true like 90s brain of basketball. Um, and he played almost all of his minutes at the center position. So he was a no-brainer for third team all NBA. So Again, just to rehash, you know, what do I have as, as my, you know, all-NBA team selections? I have Luka, Steph, Giannis, Tatum, Embiid for first team. Second team, I have Shea, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brown, Julius Randle, and Jokic. Third team all-NBA, I have Fox, Dame, LeBron, Laurie Markkinen, and DeMontis Sabonis. So, I guess, you know, the question a lot of you guys are probably thinking is, you know, who did I forget? Who did I leave out? I think my most notable snubs, in my opinion, it, you have to start with Ja Morant. The reason why I didn't end up Ja, again, you could make a good argument for Ja. He played 61 games, so, you know, he technically made it, you know, the 55-game minimum. He hit that. That being said, the reason he missed time was because he was, you know, kind of out of control personally. He had his own issues to deal with. It's not like he turned an ankle. I think, you know, maybe there should be a further penalty for for having some off-the-court issues, you know, that were kind of self-imposed, in my opinion. Maybe I'm a jerk for that. But I think that that affects him. I know the Grizzlies were really good, and he was, you know, the best player on the third team. Uh, what are they? The second seed in the West. So you could definitely argue that that's a snub, but I just feel like Dame, Fox, Mitchell... Um, you know, all those guards had better seasons. And so I ultimately landed on Ja being, you know, the first snub I wanted to mention. Anthony Davis had an incredible season. He ended up playing in 56 games. My issue is that, you know, it came down to the positions. That was my out on not including Anthony Davis. If I, in a perfect world, if I could only pick one Laker, I would pick Anthony Davis because I feel like he was that good. I think he was better than LeBron. I think he was more important to the Lakers than LeBron. But Anthony Davis played most of his minutes at the center position, especially once they got rid of Thomas Bryant at the trade deadline. He did not have a better season than Sabonis. He did not have a better season than Jokic or Embiid. So because I can only pick three centers, I left off Anthony Davis. And the last snub is Drew Holiday. Um, I talked about him a little bit for first-team all-defense, but he averaged 19-5-7, and seven, um, and he played incredible defense on the best team in basketball. And he was the second-best player for the Bucks all year. The more I think about it, the more I feel like, does Drew deserve a spot over Dame? Probably I'm going to leave Dame <laughs> just because, again, I feel like Dame had a really awesome year, but you can't go wrong with the guards, man. You can't go wrong with the guards. It was really tough this year. 
The last thing that I wanted to talk about is keeping all that in mind. I wanted to look ahead and pretend it's next season and pretend we just had the same season this year with the new rules that are applied with the new CBA that, again, require a 65-game minimum to make all-NBA awards. It would affect the MVP because Giannis couldn't get it, so I guess in that, in that sense I'd give it to Embiid because you know Giannis only played in 63 games and you'd play in 65. But I wanted to take a closer look at what the all-NBA team would look like um, what those would look like with the new standards kept in mind. Um, and I just, you know, ultimately to decide this, I just ranked my top 15 players in the NBA that played in at least 65 games. And this is a list I came up with. Number one, I had Embiid. Number two, I had Jokic. Number three, I had Tatum. Four, I had Luka. Five, I had Sabonis. Six, I had Shea. Seven, I had Donovan Mitchell. Eight, I had Jalen Brown. Nine, I had De'Aaron Fox. Ten, I had Julius Randle. Eleven, I had Laurie Markkinen. Number 12, I had Drew Holiday. Number 13, I had Anthony Edwards. Number 14, I had Jalen Brunson. And number 15, I had Bam Adebayo. So the big shift there is that basically, if the new standards were applied, my list would look different by four players. Four players would get bounced and replaced by four new players. The players that would be bounced from the All-NBA team with the new rules are Giannis, Steph, LeBron, and Dame. Um, and they would be replaced by Drew Holiday, Anthony Edwards, Jalen Brunson and Bam Adebayo. So that's very different. Uh, definitely some, you know, lack of star power. It's kind of funny that, you know, arguably the three most well-known players in the entire world uh, would be bounced from the all NBA team if the new standard was applied. So uh, again, I don't hate it. Like I, I think Drew Holiday, Anthony Edwards, Jalen Brunson and Bam Adebayo in their own right, you know, in a, you know, the league is so deep that, yeah, if those guys were on a third team all NBA, I wouldn't be upset with that. Like they're that good. It's just, were they better than the, the stars of the stars that just happened to, to miss a couple too many games? Like, I don't know. That's up for your guys' debate, but I wanted to throw it out there. A lot of me talking. I appreciate you guys uh, sticking with me. It's going to be a pretty long podcast for a solo show, but I wanted to touch upon the awards, man. I have a lot of fun doing this. A lot of prep work went into this. Uh, trying to get this right. Um, I'm really interested to see like who ends up getting it, how accurate I am. I'm probably like way off the mark in Defensive Player of the Year, but I think I made a good case for at least all the other awards and, and hopefully the, the people I picked um, get it because I think that they obviously deserve it. So that's all I wanted to talk about for today. I think we covered it, but obviously what I didn't talk about was the play-in tournament. Um, I, I talked about it a little, but the play-in tournament coming up and, and that set of games um, running throughout the week this week and then the start of the NBA playoffs, which I want to say is for like Friday, Saturday, something like that. Anyway, I want to say it starts on Saturday, but anyways, I need to talk about that. I need to talk about the results of the playing game, my thoughts on the playing game, uh, you know, who I'm picking. Maybe I pick like a little bracket with you guys or something like that uh, for who I'm picking to go all the way. I at least want to pick the first round of games. Uh, and I think that that'll be a lot of fun. So I want to do that later this week. So we're going to have a two pod uh, week, two, two episodes in one week, which should be very exciting. So I should be coming at, at you guys either Thursday or Friday with another episode, which is like my formal playoff preview. We can talk about the results of the playing game, see exactly what all the matchups are. Uh, we know a few of them that aren't dependent on the play-in tournament, but um, there's still a lot uh, a lot of good teams fighting in the play-in, so we want to see how that shakes out before I give my official picks. So that's my plan for later this week is to get you a play-in slash playoff preview pod and see how that goes. So with that, I've done more than enough talking, so I'm going to hit this button and get up out of here. Uh, before I do, make sure you follow the podcast at Words with Wallace on everything. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Definitely share the show. Tell a friend. 
uh, and shoot me a follow, man. It would be much appreciated. Uh, Thank you guys for listening, and I will talk to you later this week.